We turn in God's Word this evening to Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 8. We continue our study. We read this evening, starting at verse 31 of Mark chapter 8. And we'll read through the end of the chapter. was one of those rare occurrences. Usually I'm saying it the other way around as far as why there are the chapter breaks where they did. This time they moved the chapter break, okay? As far as the, as you look at it, they, they didn't include it in the paragraph. So the first verse of chapter 9 appears to be, as we look at it, would appear to be part of this section. I think as we examine that next Lord's Day evening, the Lord willing, it makes more sense that actually it would be, belongs to the next paragraph about the transfiguration. So in case you're wondering why are you breaking it in mid-paragraph, those are our doings. Okay? That, that's not the scriptural context, that, that's just our doing as far as editing and so on. So I, I'm including that first verse with the transfiguration rather than with this section. So we'll begin at verse 31 of Mark chapter 8. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Thus far the reading of God's word. Last Lord's Day evening, we were looking at verses 27 through 30 at the end of our message. Here is where Jesus asks, what is the popular opinion of who he is? What are others saying about what his ministry is all about? And we had that variety of answers. Some John the Baptist, others Elijah, others one of the prophets. But then Jesus asked them directly, the disciples, and who do you say that I am? And we have this 
wonderful confession. This wonderful statement of faith that Jesus in Matthew tells us comes not from Peter's own heart or mind, but that which is given to him by the Father. A reminder again of the message this morning that only the sheep that hear the voice of Jesus are those that the Father has drawn to him. So even this great confession of Peter is not really Peter's confession. This is what the Father has given to Peter to say. And Peter makes this grand, beautiful declaration. You are the Christ. And we close last Lord's Day evening with what does that mean? What does that statement entail? That you are the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the anointed one, you're the king. You're the one who I will follow all the days of my life. But Jesus isn't going to just let it set there. In what we have before us this evening in the passage that was read, Jesus is telling us about the Christ. He's telling us, first of all, about the suffering Christ. Secondly, we see the determined Christ. And thirdly, we see the expectant Christ. See, the popular view of the day was that the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, was going to come and raise up a political, a nationalistic Jewish nation that would drive out the Romans. This is still for what the Jews are waiting. They're still awaiting their Christ. They're still awaiting their Anointed One. They're still awaiting... For their Messiah to come and to reestablish Jerusalem as the capital of the Jewish nation and to rise Israel out of the lesser status it now occupies into being the great political entity that they desire it to be. That's why they reject him. It's one of the reasons for the rejection of Christ. Jesus Christ, that is. But Jesus is making it plain here that that popular belief is wrong. He is in this section explaining to Peter and to the other disciples and to the crowd, what Christ are you looking for? If you're looking for the Christ who is just going to establish a political entity and drive out the Romans, you are looking in vain. That is not who I am. And we see that noted with these words, verse 31. And he, must begin, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. See, this is a, a change that is taking place in this book. It's almost up to, as it were, Mark chapter 8, verse 29. It's been building. It's been building. Jesus has been out preaching, teaching. He's been out dealing with all these various ailments. There have been miracles of healing. There have been miracles of nature. There have been miracles of uh, 
of multiplying fish and bread. All to bring it to the point, and who do you say that I am? All of those things, all that was going on, all that we have covered so far in the Gospel of Mark is there to bring us to Peter's confession, to look at all that has happened and to ask ourselves the question based upon this reading of Scripture, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ. That is the conclusion. Based upon all that they have seen, heard, based upon that which they have witnessed and experienced, the answer of not only Peter but the disciples is this. You are the Christ. Huh, you got it. Okay. We, 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 you, you figured it out. You have the right answer. That is correct. Then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. There's a change. There's a turning point. If you recall, when we first began this series, quite a while ago now in the Gospel of Mark, we began with the theme. And the theme is that of the suffering servant. In a certain sense, that theme has been dropped. It, it's been set aside for a, for a few chapters while we build to the point of being able to look at Jesus and to say, yes, he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the anointed one. He is the king. And now Jesus begins to teach that their Christ, their Messiah, their anointed one, their king, is the one who is going to suffer. There is, is the change. And from this point on, oh, there will be miracles, there will be other things happening, but the direction is towards Jerusalem. The direction now is towards the cross. The direction is not to build up to this grand confession that Jesus is the Christ. Now the work begins to say, this is indeed the suffering Savior. This is the suffering Messiah. Note the chrono chronology that Jesus gives here. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. He is not going to win over popular opinion. Those that are in the say of the Jewish nation are not going to buy it. Now the disciples have witnessed confrontations. They have witnessed exchanges. But perhaps in their minds they're thinking over the course of time, Jesus is going to win them over. Sooner or later one of these miracles is, is going to touch their own hearts, their own minds, and they're going to go, yes, he's the Christ. Jesus is telling them plainly, gentlemen, this is not the direction this is going. The political, religious establishment of the day is not going to buy it. If you're expecting, if you're expecting some sort of national state of Israel to emerge out of that which I am doing, you can forget it. The leaders aren't buying it. 
he'll be rejected. And he includes three groups, the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. Very clearly, the disciples would understand that's the Sanhedrin. That's the Jewish ruling body. That's who's in charge. So the people in charge are going to reject me, but not just a rejection. I'm going to be killed. Think of that which transpires now in the life of Jesus in that last week. We have him coming in next Lord's Day on Palm Sunday as the crowned king. And what happens during the week? He is rejected. See, the week that, that we have coming before us in Scripture is a week that exemplifies this. You are the Christ as he enters Jerusalem, but he is rejected and killed. He will die. And after three days, rise again. Notice, Scripture underlines the fact, verse 32, and he said this plainly. This is not hidden. This is not in parable form. This is not in some way mysterious. I wonder what he means by that. It is stated to us plainly. It is given to us plainly. He's going to suffer and he's going to die. Now there should have been a connection made. This should not have astounded them. This should not have, as it were, drawn them back. This should not have drawn the reaction it does from Peter. Because Isaiah had plainly told them this. The same Isaiah who told them that a child was going to be born, the government's going to be upon his shoulders, his name shall be called Wonderful Consular, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, is the same Isaiah in prophesying about the same Messiah who writes the following. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. They will reject me. He is rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As from one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own away. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was a, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. I am going to be rejected and I'm going to be killed. Nothing new. This isn't some new scripture arising this isn't some new revelation that Jesus is giving. This is, this is the word of the Lord by the prophet Isaiah. 
This is the word of the Lord. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, the Christ that Peter confesses is the Christ who is going to suffer. He is going to die. The one who is the way, the truth, and the life, the one who is the gate, is going to die. He's going to be bloodied. There's going to be shed blood. There's going to be drops of blood at the foot of the cross. At the bottom of that door is a blood pool. You know, this morning I made, seek to emphasize the point of how exclusive this claim of Christ is. And how our world shuns it. But what often happens is this. The church that embraces Jesus as the Savior shuns the blood. They do exactly what is going to happen in a few moments out of the mouth of Peter. They want nothing to do with the suffering. They want nothing to do with the blood. They want nothing to do with an atonement. They want everything to do with a Jesus who is some nice moral teacher, but don't talk about people's sins, and don't talk about the fact that Jesus suffered, bled, and died. Don't talk about blood. They want a bloodless Christ. They want a bloodless Savior. They want a bloodless Messiah. But Jesus is telling us here in Matthew, Mark chapter 8, that is exactly the Messiah he is. That he's not the Messiah of their popular opinion. He is the Messiah of suffering. He's the Messiah that dies. Secondly, we see in this passage not just the suffering Christ, but we see the determined Christ. Because now it is that Peter stands up and gives his objection. He states here that Peter took him aside and rebuked him. Other passages tell us that he says to him, Lord, this will never be. This isn't the way it's going to go. I will not allow it to take place. And we are given, although this seems to center on Peter, we are given the understanding that all of the disciples are in similar vein. We're not going to let this happen. No, you're not going to suffer. You're not going to die. We will not let it happen. See, it didn't fit his description of the Christ. He was ready to confess, you are the Christ. But now when Jesus tells him, the type of Christ he is, the biblical Christ, the scriptural Christ, the prophesied Christ. Peter says, I want nothing to do with that. We will not let that happen. Or perhaps Peter thinks he's sparing Jesus. Maybe Peter is simply stepping forward and saying, hey, Whoa, no, 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 no. You're too important. You're too valuable. 
You're our Messiah. You're the one who's going to lead the rebellion. You're the one who's going to be the king. You're the one who is going to set the Jews as a national nation once again. No, 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 we're not going to let you die. That's not going to happen on my watch. No way. We, disciples, will make sure to guard you and protect you from any harm that may come your way. How does Jesus respond? Does Jesus respond? <laughs> well, thank you, Peter. I, I appreciate your concern for me. It's really nice to know you guys got my back. It's really nice to know that, that you guys are watching out for me. It's really nice to know that you guys are going to be there to protect me and, and that I'm never going to have to die. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. Is that the way Jesus responds? Does Jesus simply respond to Peter and say, Peter, Peter, wait a minute, Peter, just hang on. You don't quite have it right. Let me take a few moments and explain it to you again. Let me go over this with you, Peter, so that you get it right. How does Jesus respond? Jesus responds with a determination that we seldom see arise out of Jesus. But we certainly see it here, do we not? A determination, oh, not to fulfill the will of God, but a determination that sets clearly that what has come from the mouth of Peter is satanic. Now, he doesn't mean that Peter is possessed by Satan, but what he means by it is this. Those words that you have just said, the rebuke you just gave me, your thoughts and ideas, whether it be to protect me or because it doesn't fit your plan, is a satanic notion. And so Jesus doesn't just nicely say that. He looks at Peter, he looks at the others, and it's, get behind me, Satan! Sometimes, the staff, needs to be used to get the sheep in line. But sometimes the sheep don't respond to the staff and they need the rod. And this is the rod for Peter and the disciples. We go in a very few verses from Peter's, you are the Christ, to Jesus saying to him, get behind me, Satan. Why? Because if you're going to confess that Jesus is the Christ, you have to confess the truth about who that Christ is. And Jesus is determined. I will not turn away from the cross. I do not want you to keep me from the cross. I will not turn away from the Father's will. I will fulfill the commitment and covenant that I have made with the Father. I will empty myself. I will humble myself. I will even to the point of death for the sake of my sheep 
for the sake of the sheep that the Father has given to me, I will die. For there is no other way for them to become my sheep. I will lay down my life for my sheep. The determined Christ. One of the gospel accounts we read that, that after one of these incidents, Jesus set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. In other words, he had a steel fixed gaze upon the cross. I'm not turning from it. Satan, you tried to distract me in the desert. You tried to turn me to the easy route that you were offering there. You have been pestering me. You have been pestering me throughout my entire ministry. You've been bringing all of these objections. You've been bringing the rejection of the people of the Gadarenes. Get out of here. You've been bringing the frustration I've had in dealing with people who when I tell them don't say anything, say something. And when I say say something, they say nothing. You've been working and working and working behind the scenes. Now you are even infiltrating into my disciples and you are using Peter who just gave this great confession to try to seek me from fulfilling that which is my will. Get behind me, Satan. The determined Christ. But thirdly in this passage, we meet the expectant Christ. So the Christ that is confessed in verse 29 is the Christ, if we truly understand Scripture by Scripture now, is a Christ who is going to suffer, a Christ who is going to die. It is a Christ who is determined to fulfill the will of the Father. Yet not my will but thy will be done. But it is also a Christ who is expectant. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The Christ, the Messiah, expects us to carry our cross. He expects us to suffer for him. Jesus is not talking about any physical problem we may be dealing with. Sometimes we use that expression. It's probably a poor choice of words. We, we might have some sort of uh, long-term problem with our heart or we might have a long-term problem with arthritis or we might have a long-term problem with uh, diabetes and we might say well that's my cross to bear that's not what Jesus is talking about Jesus is not even talking about the fact that sometimes our job our work is frustrating sometimes the boss or the organization makes our job less than a joy and a delight to live with. He's not even talking about living with somebody who perhaps is ornery 
and difficult in life. That's not what he's talking about. The cross that Jesus is speaking of here is the cross that is specifically associated with walking in Christ's footsteps. It is that which we deal with. It is that which we bear. It is that which we experience because we are a follower of Jesus Christ. We follow the shepherd, and the shepherd goes to a cross. And Jesus expects us to walk in those footsteps. Oh, the meaning is different, the purpose is different, but he expects us to do so. One commentator on this passage said, if you're not suffering at all for being a believer, you better examine as to whether or not you're really a believer. Because Jesus expects it. He expects you to carry your cross, to suffer for his sake. Because you're in his footsteps. You are embracing his life. You're following his teaching. You're speaking of him being the way. And there are those who hate you for it. There are those who make your life miserable because of it. There are those who persecute you because you follow in the footsteps of your Savior. Because you follow the good shepherd. Because you follow his voice. Because you follow his leading. There are those who say, you can't work here. There are those who say, you can't come to our family reunion. It is the persecution of being left out. Because you're here. It is the persecution of not getting the promotion because you absolutely refuse to work on the Lord's day. It is the hardship that you endure when the world says, just get a divorce and get rid of him or her. And you say, no, that is not what my Savior told me to do. That is not, and I will bear with, I will deal with all of the problems and difficulties that come to me because to miss that which my Savior said would do a dishonor to my suffering Savior, I must bear the cross. In multiple, in countless ways, the question is, are we suffering? Jesus expects it. He expects our Christian life to be lived in such a way that this will come. Business deals will go south because we'll refuse to go along with that which dishonors Christ. We'll have to forego vacations because it will dishonor Christ. We will not do that 
which will bring dishonor to Christ. We will live out our Christian life. We will stop and say, please stop using my Savior's name in vain. Please stop using my Lord's name in a meaningless way. And what's going to happen? Holy person. Or you'll become their number one fan or whatever. Or maybe your tires will get slit. Maybe there'll be a key mark along the side of your vehicle. This is what Christ means. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is what the Christ expects of his people. But it's not just that. The expectant Christ also expects us to be losers. You don't hear that much in our society, do you? Today in our society, it's all about being a winner, right? Look out for number one. Look out for yourself. Live for yourself. Pamper yourself. Do this for yourself. You deserve a break today. Jesus says, no, I expect you to lose your life. I expect you to be a loser. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. What does Jesus mean? Does he mean we have to die for him? Well, if necessary, he means we have to die for him. But what he really means is this, we have to die to self. We have to die to the almighty eye. The throne of our life cannot be inhabited by ourselves. We have to lose our life. We have to stop living for ourselves. Finders, keepers, losers, weepers is wrong. It's unbiblical. Because Jesus said the ones who lose are the ones who find. Jesus says the losers are the keepers. See, our society has it all wrong. Even that little statement is built upon a wrong philosophy of life. It's based upon, I get, I get, I get. If I found, it's mine. Jesus says, no, you need to be a loser. You need to lose yourself in me. You have to deny yourself for my sake. For the sake of the gospel. For the sake of the truth. And if necessary, you have to even lose your physical life for me. One day a rich young ruler came to Jesus. What must I do to be saved? Keep the commandments. All these I have done since my birth. Then Jesus said to him, then go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And the man went away sorrowful. Why? Because he was unwilling to part with self. 
He was unwilling to lose his life. His identity was his wealth. And he was unwilling to lose himself for the sake of Christ. But whoever is willing to lose themselves for Christ, they're the keepers. They're the ones who find. They're the ones who receive life. Third thing that the Christ expects. He expects us to carry our cross. He expects us to be losers. And thirdly, he expects that we will not be ashamed. He expects that we will not be ashamed. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him Will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory with his Father, with his holy angels? He expects us to not be ashamed of him. How many times in this last week would we have to examine our life and say, I was ashamed of Jesus? Maybe you were on vacation with somebody and they, maybe they aren't Christians. And so rather than cause a problem with them, you just said, well, we won't go to church last week. You're ashamed of Jesus. Rather than bowing your head in a public place for prayer over a meal, which is what you do at home all the time, Lord willing, now you're too ashamed. You don't want to be identified as one of those. You don't want your neighbors to think that somehow you're some zealot of Christianity, so you kind of temper it down in the neighborhood. You don't want the guys at work to know you're really a Christian, so when the subject turns to some moral Thing, you just keep quiet about his words. Oh, he said that, right? Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, my teaching. Now, so when the professor or the teacher in class is talking about the fact that, well, you know, Christianity with all of its exclusive claims really isn't true, all religions are the same. You just keep quiet because the price to pay is too great. He may lower my grade if I disagree with him. He may flunk me from this class. For whoever loses his life for my sake, he will find it. If anyone is ashamed of me and of my words, I will be ashamed of him. He expects us. To not be ashamed. No wonder Jesus told us clearly, plainly, that the narrow road is not an easy road. If you're following the good shepherd, it's not an easy road. Following the good shepherd is not for wimps. you got to be tough. You need to be strong. 
You've got to be willing to lay down your life. You've got to be willing to not be ashamed. You've got to be willing to lose yourself in Christ. And yet the reward, <laughs> the reward that the Christ gives. Whoever confesses me before men, I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. This one is one of my sheep. I recognize them because they were in the pen. And when I led them out to pasture, they followed me. And when I was on that narrow, hard way, they were there behind me. I know my sheep. What a blessing. What a joy. And God's people say, Amen. Father, we thank you again for your word and for its testimony, for its challenge to each one of our hearts. Father, I, I doubt there is anyone here tonight who is left unchallenged by these words, myself included, to live this kind of life, this expectant life that the Christ calls us to live. It's hard, it's difficult, but your rod, your staff, they're with me. Father, you provide your word and your spirit so that we are not left alone. What a blessing it is to know that the good shepherd leads us on the narrow road, but it leads to eternal life. In Christ's name, God's people again say, Amen.